The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Lawfare Archive. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for July 17, 2021. Earlier this week, the Lithuanian parliament voted to allow the mass detention of asylum seekers as it faces an influx of foreign migrants, many from locations in the Middle East and Iraq and Syria coming from their neighbor Belarus, who some say is deliberately directing migrants through the two countries' shared border as retribution for Lithuania's willingness to host Belarusian dissidents. The complicated situation is a reminder of the challenges posed by the global refugee crisis and the abuse that migrants caught up in the crisis can often face from multiple parties. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to April 2016 for a discussion with Eric Schwartz, then Dean of the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, who had previously served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. He and Ben Wittes discussed U.S. refugee policy in response to the Syrian civil war and other global challenges, and how to balance security needs and humanitarian objectives, questions policymakers are still wrestling with today. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 9th, 2016. That is the voice of Eric Schwartz explaining why the United States has an interest in alleviating the Syrian refugee crisis. Schwartz is the dean of the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. He previously served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. In our conversation, he sketched the key aspects of U.S. refugee policy and explained how it both protects the security of the United States and at times undermines its ability to accept refugees. Schwartz outlines what a coherent refugee policy would look like and argues that the reforms must go beyond simply accepting more refugees. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 165, Eric Schwartz, Refugee Policy, and the Syrian Civil War. All right, so let's start with your involvement in this area. We've had a lot of discussion on the site about refugees and Syrian refugees in particular. Uh, For better or worse, I've probably had as much experience as a practitioner uh, at a senior level as as, um, 
as most uh, anyone um, uh, in the refugee admissions area. Um, during the um, uh, during the Clinton administration, between 1993 and 2000, I uh, ultimately served as a senior director and special assistant to the president uh, for uh, multilateral and humanitarian affairs. But throughout that eight-year period, I was the principal uh, national security staff member with responsibility for the U.S. Uh, refugee uh, program and um, international humanitarian response more broadly. Um, more um, recently, uh, in the first part of the Obama administration, I served as Assistant Secretary of State uh, for Population, Refugees, and Migration, which is um, the, not only the principal humanitarian uh, officer at the Department of State, but also uh, the person with responsibility uh, for um, the uh, U.S. refugee admissions uh, program. I also had other uh, positions in the NGO and uh, community and uh, with the United Nations where I also dealt with these issues um, uh, in, in one way or another. But, but those two experiences in the government are probably my principal um, uh, involvement. So when you talk about U.S. and refugee admissions, you hear two things all the time. One is that, you know, uh, we take a lot of refugees, um, and we're the sort of world leader in refugee resettlement. And the second thing is we've taken almost no Syrian refugees. We're way behind the Europeans, um, and um, that there's something sort of morally deficient about our posture with respect to uh, the current crisis. So I, I'm wondering if you can sort of unpack this a little bit and describe as a general matter the U.S. posture toward refugees, both in general and in this uh, particular conflict. Well, um, you know, uh, there's more than a germ of truth in each one of those uh, apparently uh, conflicting statements. Uh, so I think unpacking it is very important. Uh, first, um, when we talk about um, um, uh, refugees, we're, we're talking uh, refugees, uh, the, the definition of refugee is a person who is uh, outside uh, uh, their country of or origin and has uh, a well-founded fear of uh, persecution, um, um, and um, and and that is an internationally defined uh, term, and um, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't require in, in a sort of an, in a, in an existential sense it doesn't require um, a government to designate you as a refugee. If they, if that is the definition you fit, then you're a refugee, and uh, governments have processes. That recognize that status and, there, and thereby confer benefits. And in the United States, there are really two ways that people become refugees. There is the through the U.S. Um, or, or there, there are two ways that people become recognized as refugees. There is the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, um, the latest iteration of which um, uh, was authorized by the 1980 um, Refugee Act. Um, and um, under that program, uh, which uh, when we talk about refugee resettlement, that's really what we're generally talking about. Uh, each year, the President of the United States, uh, uh, based on recommendations from the Department of State, uh, makes a judgment about how many refugees uh, the United States is prepared to take in 
usually from countries um, where they are um, uh, in, in some sort of safe haven, from countries to which they have fled. And that's why the term is often uh, referred to as third country resettlement, because a refugee, in, uh, an individual in Somalia flees uh, to Kenya, and that's where he or she receives safe haven, and then um, is resettled uh, through a, essentially a discretionary process by the United States uh, into um, uh, the United States, and that's referred to as third country resettlement. In recent years, that has been done by U.S. officials in, in closer collaboration with the United Nations High Commissioner uh, for Refugees. Now, to be sure, uh, worldwide, um, the United States resettles through these kinds of uh, essentially discretionary programs, a very high percentage, perhaps more than half, of the world's refugees who are resettled through these kinds of programs. In recent years, the United States has resettled about 70,000 a year through these processes. Um, and, um, and, and so we can take pride in the fact that we are the, um, uh, that we do such a high percentage of this resettlement. Per capita, we are not the top. Other governments um, um, uh, uh, do more, but nonetheless, and, and uh, we probably resettle, uh, you know, on the order of half of all those who are resettled through that process. But the other way that people uh, become recognized as refugees is they simply cross borders. And, uh, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who are entering uh, Europe um, are not entering through these kinds of refugee resettlement programs, but 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 the, the vast majority of them will be deemed to be refugees, right? So, so um, and we um, and and in the case of the Syrians, uh, we uh, and others who uh, uh, Afghani's and other populations that are crossing into Europe, um, when we say we resettle half of the world's refugees. We're not including those groups of people um, because that is that's really through the system of of asylum and it's a much more unmanaged system, but it also results in refugee resettlement. So that's you know so that's 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 the framework. That's you know that 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 that's that's the frame. Now, um, sh should I answer the second part of your question? Because I I heard you. you it, it sounds like you have. No, a, no. Go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so um, so in the Syria case. Um, you know, Syrians are not crossing um, our southern borders in large numbers, and um, and so if we don't uh, take a um, political decision to resettle large numbers of Syrians, then large numbers of Syrians won't be uh, resettled in the United States. And many of us, myself included, um, have uh, strongly argued that uh, the United States has um, a both a strategic interest and a humanitarian interest in um, resettling much larger numbers of Syrians than we have been prepared to date uh, to resettle, and uh, um, and um, you know and and we can talk about that. I, I'd be happy to talk about why I think this is very important, both for uh, strategic reasons as well as uh, for humanitarian reasons. So let's we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to. I want to unpack one element of what you just said. So when 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 you say that Syrians aren't crossing the southern border, uh is it is it fair as a general matter to say that the US posture toward refugees is that because we don't have refugee crises leading to people flowing into onto our shores or across our borders 
uh, organically, except you know, except occasional waves of, of Cubans or Haitians. Um, we have the luxury of sort of deciding what are the groups that we want to take. And so we tend to do it in a sort of more relaxed, long-term way as long-term resettlement rather than sort of short-term crisis management. Is that a, is, is that the sort of tectonic plate level of, of the way the U.S. thinks about refugees or is that just sort of reading a lot into? Well, there's something to that. But I, I would make a couple of points. There's something to that point, but I would make a couple of points. First of all, um, we have demonstrated in the past some capacity to deal with more uh, emergency-like uh, situations. Uh, we don't seem to ha um, have – we, we have not demonstrated that capacity, um, you know, in the current situation, but – um, in the case of um, Indo-Chinese refugees um, fleeing after the war, in the case of um, uh, Kosovars, um, uh, in the case of Kurds who were uh, fleeing uh, northern Iraq uh, in the mid-1990s, we, we have um, uh, demonstrated a capacity to move quickly and um, provide, in the first instance, some degree of refuge, and in the second instance, resettlement in situations that were more emergency-like. But I think your, your, your basic comment, which is that the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program is not fundamentally a rescue program, is probably accurate. My concern is I think we ought to have at least some better capacity to act more quickly and in uh, emergent situations for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and I think um, the other point I would make is we do have um, uh, 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 refugees crossing our border issue in the United States, our southern border, with respect to um, uh, uh, Central Americans. And, right. um, and, and that's an issue which um, is, uh, you know, which we also have not demonstrated a, a, a terrific uh, capacity uh, to deal with um, both effectively and in as humane a manner as we could. So I don't want to pretend that, that those sorts of issues don't exist for us. Um, the only other point I would make is, and the obvious, yes, that, that the U.S. Resettle, Refugee Resettlement Program and other countries, third country resettlement program, programs are, um, are in large measure designed to address uh, issues of protracted refugee situations that have existed over many years um, with an understanding that refugee resettlement is only going to be a solution for a tiny percentage of the world's refugees under the best of circumstances. So one of the other things that we hear, you know, both sides of on a regular basis, and this one strikes me as a circle that can't be squared, not a circle like the, the one we started with that actually has elements of truth to both. You hear simultaneously there's a big security threat from refugees and Refugees are vetted at a level that's completely unlike uh, visa admissions, um, you know, and therefore we should consider there being very limited or virtually no security threat from Syrian refugees. I'm not – I don't see, honestly, how to square that circle. Is there elements of truth to both of these, or is one side simply wrong? Well, let me draw from, if I may, um, and I want to, because I want to avoid any <laughs> accusation of plagiarizing myself, let me draw from testimony that I offered, um, uh, if I might, at uh, 
the Homeland Security uh, Committee uh, back in November, and, and where I where I addressed this issue uh, quite explicitly. Um, you know, I think the real question is what 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 questions should we be asking about uh, refugee resettlement, right? And I think it's a critically the security issue is a critically important one, but I also think the wrong question will result in policy, you know, outcomes that don't serve our interests. And and so I think we, in, in a certain way, I think we, uh, it's worth thinking about the question we shouldn't be asking, which is whether the Syrian refugee resettlement program, um, or, you know, for that matter, any refugee uh, resettlement or even immigration program can guarantee against admission of an individual who has very bad intent. And... And the, 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 the short of it is no program can do that. Uh, you know, if you want to put this issue in perspective, since um, 2013, um, uh, or as of uh, 2013, there were about 40, more than 40 million immigrants in the United States. Um, and, um, um, uh, um, and between 2010 and 2013, about 4 million uh, people entered our country to establish residence of one kind or another. And almost none of these individuals, I would, I would even say none of these individuals, received anything like the scrutiny that's given to a refugee applicant from Syria. Okay, and so let me, let, me, let me stop you right there and ask the question, why not? So, like, you know, why... Why are refugees screened at a level that's so far and above what we do for other people who are coming here for residency purposes? Oh, I thought you were going to ask a different question, which I also think is is and, and let me get to your let me get to the question you've just asked, but let me also get to the question that um that um that you didn't ask, but I think is a very legitimate question is why do we let all these people in? Right? I mean, why, why do we let all these people in? And the answer is, 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 is on one level, is so obvious that you don't, you know, you, you wonder why it has to be asked, but it, it, it's asked. And the answer is because the overwhelm, the, the benefits, uh, to this kind of immigration is, have, have been so overwhelmingly positive and have been so, and have so overwhelmingly dwarfed what the, 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 um, you know, the risks that are incurred when anyone comes into your country. The United States would not be the United States if we did not have the kind of immigration through um, the 19th and 20th century that, have, that, that sort of created um, the, 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 the vibrant economic dynamic society that we have. And, it would, and it's just it would not have been possible to run every single immigrant coming into the United States through the, the, the you know the, the kind of um, you know procedures that some members of the House several months ago were advocating it, it just it wouldn't have happened right so right. the answer is self evident so now let me get to your question right, right. So, my question is the converse right, of that the question is, is G- the given, given how lax our general and that's just the residency stuff then yeah. there's the 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 non residency visas of students and 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 tourists. We let people in with, it's not no questions asked, but it's relatively few questions asked for, for a lot of types of visas. Why do we, why, why are refugees presumptively so different that they go through this two to three year vetting process um, before we let them in? Well, um, I, I, we can discuss 
Ben, whether this this um, you know whether what is needed in this kind of vetting process, but but I I think it's it's not unreasonable um, to um, you know to to say that individuals who are fleeing uh, situations of uh, conflict, um, which are um, in, in in circumstances where it may be more difficult to 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 have. Um, um, easy access to uh, a lot of biographical data. It's not unreasonable to take the position that that, um, that 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 such people who come into the United States, you know, it's legitimate for us uh, to um, uh, you know to uh, to to put in systems that provide um, you know some additional scrutiny. I, I, I think, in principle. That is a reasonable position. It's, and, and I think the tough question is how much. <laughs> the, that's the, you know, what procedures are appropriate, what procedures are redundant, what procedures are unnecessary. And those are legitimate questions. But I, I don't, I think it's reasonable to, you know, to, to say in, 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 given the circumstances, um, you know, that, 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 that these populations groups have encountered, it, it's reasonable, uh, you know, to look at at, 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 at some some higher degree of scrutiny. I, I, I can't I can't object to that, and 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 I don't think most reasonable people would object to that. The question is how much, and the question is, are our procedures, you know, just so turgid and um, and so under resourced? Um, that uh, we're doing these people um, uh, an injustice. To me, that's to me that's the real uh, policy and program question. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report 
from delete me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So, and, and what's the answer to that question? In, in your experience, is the vetting that we're doing through this process, uh, as most members of Congress seem to believe, insufficiently rigorous, and as the FBI has complained, um, you know, they don't feel like they can do an adequate vet for some of these people based on the information available. Is it approximately the right amount of rigorous and rigor, and therefore we should just accept that um, unless we decide to take extra, a lot of extra risk by doing a sort of major surge in refugee admissions with lesser vetting, uh, we're, it's gonna take a while for us to admit people. Or is, or is it, you know, 
is it is it too rigorous? Um, I think that um, um, uh, well, let, let me first say uh, I am. Uh, I think it is a it, the, the the screening the security screening right now. The the processes um, 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 are um, uh, they, they provide a robust degree of safeguards that more than justify the continuation of these programs. So I've answered one side of your question, and and that is you know because these reviews. Um, and, and obviously, if I were in the government now, I would have much more knowledge about this, but I probably could say much less about it. Right. Um, but it involves reviews by, you know, federal intelligence, security, law enforcement agencies, the National Counterterrorism uh, Center, the FBI Terrorist Screening Center, the Departments of Homeland Security, State and Defense, biometric uh, data, biographical data, detailed interviews by DHS officers, um, um, so, uh, you know, and, and, um, <laughs> and I, I would urge all of, our, uh, of the listeners to, 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 to look at a, a, a video by uh, John Oliver on this subject. It was hilarious, but also a great lesson in public policy. And, um, and he described some of these. And, um, and, um, and they, they really are quite, quite extensive. Now, can the process be speeded up? Um, I think that there are um, a range of non-security related redundancies in the process that could be eliminated and a number of non-governmental organizations have written about those redundancies um, or have expressed concern about those uh, redundancies. Uh, Hayas, the, um, uh, the Jewish Communities Refugee um, Advocacy Organization has done a good study of this and so I think some of those redundancies could speed the process, uh, reducing them could speed the process up. Um, and I, um, but I, I think, um, I, I think that uh, we, uh, given the security screening procedures, I think our capacity to bring in large numbers of people in a very short period of time is going to be um, inevitably limited, inevitably limited. And for that reason, you know, I think we have to look at other, you know, other options if we're thinking about trying to take responsibility for large numbers of Syrian refugees, as I think we should. And what, how do you evaluate what the right large number is. I mean, when when I, you, you know, people, Obama threw out the number, we're going to take an, an additional 10,000. And the um, and the High Commissioner for Refugees said, you know, no, it should be, I, I think they used the number 60,000, right? Um, and, like, people keep throwing, or, or, or some, uh, some entity threw out the number 100,000. So, you know, there's this sort of, people are throwing around these very big, very round numbers, and I don't really understand where any of them comes from. Um, and, and so I'm curious, how do you think about the question, what's the right number for the U.S. to admit? Well, that's a great question, and I think before answering the question, I think you really have to think about what are our geopolitical and humanitarian uh, interests in the program. Um and um um uh you know I think um you know I think uh, I, I think that's the first question to answer because that that question drives uh, at least informs a judgment about how many people we ought to be resettling. And I, I think with with um Europe um being asked to provide humane treatment for hundreds of thousands of Syrians who continue to stream in, with um, with um, uh, countries in the region being asked to provide 
um, not only safe haven, but now things like employment opportunities, uh, school opportunities for children, all of which they should be providing. Uh, but with, you know, for, for well over 4 million refugees, it seems to me that we have an obligation to demonstrate that we have skin in the game. If, if we want to continue to be a leader on these issues. And, and so why is that important? First, it's important because it communicates uh, this critical commitment to burden, sh burden sharing. Turkey's hosting more than 2 million Syrian refugees, Lebanon more than a million, Jordan's numbers are estimated on the order of about 650,000. Um, if we're asking them and if we're asking our European friends and allies um, to, um, to, to, to uh, take on responsibilities, um, our failure to do so won't only be perceived as an expression of hypocrisy, but also diminished leadership. I think also we have to recognize that the battle against ISIS is a worldwide effort in which ISIS and its use of social media and other means of communication, they offer this apocalyptic vision of conflict that rejects any notion of the compatibility of Islam and other traditions. So when we have people in our political political leaders um, you know, talk about, and, and we, the United States, has welcomed persecuted Muslims from around the world in our refugee resettlement program. It's a highly effective rebuke of this preposterous ISIS notion. But when we impose these bars or unreasonable obstacles to the entry of particular groups, um, we risk playing right into the narrative that um, that we're trying to combat around the world. So, 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 so that all drives me to the belief that we ought to make a significant and substantial commitment on refugee resettlement. It's why I was pleased to have initiated a letter. Um, that was signed by 22 former U.S. officials, uh, Republicans, Democrats, former Foreign Service officers, urging us not only a substantial increase in our levels of humanitarian aid, but to support a refugee admissions goal of 100,000 Syrians. And there are lots of ways we could have done that. Now, is that an arbitrary number? Not completely. Um, not completely. Um, but um, but could the number? You know. But but I think we felt that 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 would represent it would represent a tiny percentage. Uh, or a small percentage of the numbers of Syrians who might be in need of resettlement, but um, but it would represent um, a, um, a fair share effort on the part of the United States that would communicate meaningfully that we have skin in the game. So I hear millions of Trump supporters and Ted Cruz supporters and less politically extreme people gasping when you say that 100,000 number as a cost of U.S. leadership um, or as the ante for U.S. leadership, gasping and saying, you're talking about letting in people, if even a small percentage of them turn out to be ISIS people masquerading as refugees, you're going to create Belgium-like cells all over the United States. So let me ask you two questions. The first is, um, what's the actual history of infiltration of the refugee program by radical groups? And second, um, of radicalization of refugees either before they come here or after they get here? Um well, the United States, you know, because of the kind of country that we are, um, because we are a country of immigrants, uh, because um, we are um, we are very diverse 
increasingly diverse and 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 first uh and second generation or um um uh, first generation Americans um you know uh quickly become much more assimilated than in other parts of the world um we have not experienced um that that degree of alienation um that uh that has um uh, you know that our European uh, f- uh, friends and uh, you know have uh, you know have been have been challenged by, um, and um, so I think our experience really is in many ways a model for um, the rest of the world, and I, I don't want to suggest that um, that there aren't any challenges, but the future of the United States is um, an increase. It, 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 you know, uh, and our path is really laid out ahead of us. We will, in a number of decades, become um, a majority a minority uh, country. Um, our, our, we are, our diversity is increasing uh, dramatically uh, and rapidly, and um, so um, you know we have not only the opportunity uh, to continue to demonstrate um, how we um, we are inclusive and how people come to our country and become American. But I, I think we have no choice um, because that is our future. Now, um, you know, there, there, I, I, I can't say that there have been no uh, um, 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 resettled refugees who have been, um, you know, who have, who, who have um, um, been of concern to um, our security um, uh um, uh, agencies, but the numbers relative to the to the numbers of people who come into the United States are tiny, and um, and and the numbers of people who have been um, um, accused of and prosecuted for for, for for criminal activity is infinitesimal, and um, and and I think those numbers are really only relevant if you look at them against um, similar numbers for immigrants generally. So what's the I'm trying to try to and, 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 and again and again, you know, you, you, you have to weigh um, you know those challenges against the enormous benefits uh, to our country in terms of um, um, what our tradition of immigration has represented, in terms of the strength and vibrancy of our society, but also in terms of what it represents with respect to our leadership in the world. And our leadership with leadership comes responsibility, but as we all know, with leadership also comes some very serious benefits uh, to um, you know to our nation and our people, and, and 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 to me that's the context in which you have to look at all these issues. So what you're describing though is pretty diametrically opposed to the political climate of the country right now. Right. So you, the president has said he'll you know he wants to take an extra ten thousand, and that's highly controversial. Um, so the marginal ninety thousand that you're talking about is far you know is marginal above and beyond what the administration which is philosophically sympathetic to your point of view actually thinks is politically plausible for it to get done um talk about the politics of it how how do you convince people that um that this is not just importing the problems of the middle east into their neighborhoods 
Yeah. Um, well, first, you know, I, I have to, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the political challenges are significant and substantial, right? And, um, and, um, but I think um, the national interest benefits of uh, sustaining uh, these approaches are, are, to my mind, um, significant and substantial. Um, and, um, and, and critically important. And so if that's, if that's the perspective from which, uh, somebody is coming, then th there is a real challenge in how do you communicate that effectively? Um, and, um, and, and how do you demonstrate, exercise the leadership on this issue, um, in the domestic political environment? And I think it's very difficult. I think part of it is much more aggressively uh, working uh, with local communities who have, you know, who have welcomed these refugees, um, who have seen the benefits of engagement with these communities. Um, I think, you know, there are refugee, there are resettled refugees in each of our 50 states. And, um, and our system uh, of refugee resettlement guarantees that local communities become the agents of this kind of inclusion. And in most, in, in the overwhelming majority of cases, um, communities benefit by, um, um, uh, by bringing in um, new arrivals. Here in Minnesota, um, we're talking uh, to officials um, uh, about um, refugee resettlement uh, to, uh, um, to address a whole range of, 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 of issues, including, uh, labor shortages, um, th that, um, you know, that, um, you know, that, that, that do exist and will, and will grow, uh, in this state. And, um, and so there's a real openness and an appetite for engaging on these issues. And I think we need to hear more from those voices, um, than we've had, than we, than we have had, than, than we have heard to date. And um, and I think there's a role for um, the president and the national political leadership in um, in speaking in, in not only bringing these groups together but also speaking out um, on behalf of these principles. But I don't look I don't underestimate the political challenge. But just because it's a significant political challenge doesn't mean it shouldn't be engaged. If you had to change one thing systemically about the U.S. refugee program. Um, what would it be? Oh, um, well, there are a few things I would change. <laughs> um, and I tried to, uh, you know, and I worked on some of these issues when I was in the job. Although, let me just, uh, let me just give a shout out to the people who work on refugee resettlement and refugee admissions issues in the U.S. government and on international humanitarian issues in the U.S. government. I mean, you know, um, the United States, in terms of our engagement overseas, uh, were pretty unique. For better or worse, um, values um, play a significant role uh, in, um, in the debate on foreign policy um, and in the execution of foreign policy. And, and sometimes um, um, that, can ha that can have, you know, that can have all kinds of effects. But on balance, I'd much prefer uh, to be trying to make foreign policy uh, for a country in which um, values are playing a role in foreign policy decisions than um, one in which um, um, they were absent. And I, and I give enormous credit to the people in government, in the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, in USAID and elsewhere who are working on these issues. So having said that, you know, I think there are a couple of things I would do. 
Uh, one is I would um, um, I think we've done pretty well in terms of the, the level of assistance. Our program, uh, our program, the U.S. Refugee Program, is one that 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 emphasizes self-sufficiency upon arrival. And and you know it's not a it's not a gold-plated refugee resettlement program. And you and you can you can verify that by talking to any refugee in the United States. Um, people really do have to make it on their own when they get here, and they largely do. But having said that, I, and I still think there is more we can do to assist incoming refugees once they're here. I think at the State Department, we addressed a lot of these resource needs during my tenure, and I think the initial assistance that we provide to people, um, you know, it, there, there could always be more, but I think we're doing a reasonable job there. But I think that in the first many months after arrival, where a lot of the assistance programs transfer to the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee Resettlement and the states and localities, I think there's more the federal government can do at a modest um, uh, commitment of resources to ease the transition uh, for refugees over the first year, two, or three of, after their arrival. And I'm not talking about, you know, a gold-plated um, program, but a program that gives them a bit better of a capacity to make it on their own, right, because people need a, a, a bit more of a helping hand. So that would be one area I would take aim at um, uh, in the program. And the second, and this is the one that we've been kind of alluding to during this conversation, is um, we need to figure out a better way to do rescue uh, in, um, in, in situations like the ones we confront in Syria. Understanding that on, in the current security climate, um, we're not ease, able easily to bring you know, tens of thousands of conflict victims directly into the United States in very short order. And so if that's the, if that's the reality, the question is, how can we, through our refugee resettlement program, at least begin to think about ways uh, to to do better with respect to rescue? And and the and one idea that I've had about this is that um, you know we could perhaps w be working with friendly governments uh, um, uh, that are serving as safe havens and and identifying and and, and identify um, populations. Um, within those countries, populations of refugees whom we are committed to processing over time, um, um, in, in ex but in exchange for some sort of um, uh, agreement on the part of those uh, countries of safe haven to, um, uh, to provide such safe haven for some limited period of time while we go through our processing. But we need to do better on this issue of of rescue than, than we've been than, than we've been able to do in recent years. Eric Schwartz, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, we need you to spread the word to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet about it. Share it on Facebook. Instagram pictures of yourself listening to the Lawfare podcast. Do whatever you need to do. And as always, thanks for listening.